Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Climate change has never been higher up on the agenda, and homes have a really important part to play in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In 2019, direct greenhouse gas emissions from homes accounted for 13% of all emissions in the UK. These emissions are mainly the result of burning fossil fuels. And for the UK to meet this 2050 net zero target, emissions from buildings need to be eliminated. Put another way, that is 67 million tonnes of annual greenhouse gas emissions which need to be reduced to zero in 30 years. This is a hugely ambitious target for all homes, but one sector poses the greatest challenge to decarbonise, and that is rural homes. The government aims to tackle rural off-gas grid homes first, where many homeowners, landlords and social housing managers will be both asked and required to make changes to the heating and energy efficiency of their properties this decade. In this podcast, we look at why rural homes pose such a challenge to decarbonise and how they can fit in with a green agenda. And here to talk us through this very timely and important topic is Hermione Warmington, CLA Property and Business Policy Advisor. Welcome, Hermione. And perhaps to start, you could explain to our listeners a bit about your background and your work with the CLA. Thanks, Alid. So, as you said, I'm a policy advisor at the CLA. So, I lead on rural housing. That is both housing development, but also property management. And a big part of my work recently has been energy efficiency. So, that's both energy efficiency of homes, but it also extends to the energy efficiency of commercial dwellings as well. So, as well as working on the policy side of things, I'm also involved in member inquiries. So I do get to chat to our members um, daily about the things that are impacting them um, in terms of housing. And today we're talking about decarbonising rural homes. Tell us a bit more about the type of emissions homes are responsible for. What type of carbon do they emit? So broadly speaking, there are two types of emissions that are emitted from homes. We've got direct emissions and we've got indirect emissions. So direct emissions are mainly from burning fossil fuels. So that's for heating our homes. For urban homes, this would be natural gas. But for rural homes, we're mainly talking about oil. And then in terms of indirect emissions, these are from electricity. So when you turn on your plug to heat your hot water, to use your appliances, to turn on your lights, 
And the carbon emissions associated with, with these are indirect. So it's about how that electricity is produced. So you could be on a green energy supplier and therefore it would be a renewable source, but you also may not be and therefore there would be a carbon impact associated with that. And in terms of what we're talking about today, it will be direct emissions because that's the thing that homeowners, landlords, tenants have control of. And what do we mean by decarbonising? When we talk about decarbonising, it just means reducing the amount of greenhouse gas emissions associated with living in a home. The main one is talking about heating, so how our homes are heated. The Climate Change Committee in their sixth carbon budget set out three key ways in which homes could be decarbonised. And these, these provide quite a good structure about how to think about it. So the first one they talk about is behavioural change. And that's something we can all do. We can all do from today. Things like turning off the lights, things like having a smart meter in our home. So we're a bit more, we're clever about how we use our electricity and when we use electricity. And then things like pre, if you have a well-insulated home, preheating your homes ahead of the peak times of energy. The second thing is the energy efficiency of our home. So really what this means is how well a home keeps in the heat that you produce. So improving this is really looking at improving the fabric of the home. So that might be wall insulation, although I'll talk a bit about that later in terms of traditional homes, but you're talking floor insulation, loft insulation, basically keeping that heat in. And the last part is low carbon heating. So going back to how we heat our homes, um, as I said earlier, homes are mainly heated by fossil fuels. So that's mainly gas and oil. And that's switching from those fossil fuels to low carbon heat options. Um, and that's something that we'll explore later on. That's certainly a really good way of putting it, uh, explaining it in those three key points. But but why do rural homes pose such a challenge to decarbonise? What's different about them compared to, to homes in urban areas? So I suppose there's really two aspects to this answer. The first one is what you said, why rural homes are different to urban housing. But the second one, slightly more technical, is the policy that all of this is based around. So I'll start by looking at the actual housing stock. Rural housing is really different to urban housing. Firstly, rural homes are much likely to be older. And when we talk about older homes, we're really talking about homes that are built of traditional construction. So usually that's homes that were built before 1919. That's sort of the date used as the cutoff date. And really what this means is those homes are built with solid walls. So those are sort of big stone, usually the local vernacular stone. And that is compared with cavity walls that are used for modern construction, where there's a gap for air, they can be insulated. So they're built in a completely different way, but also they work in a completely different way. So these older buildings were actually designed to breathe. That basically means that moisture goes in and out of them. So through these stone walls, moisture is being drawn in and drawn out. And the whole thing needs to let that movement of air happen. Whereas with modern homes, the construction means that they're sealed. So vapour and moisture isn't meant to move in through the walls. They're built specifically to stop that happening. So that's why we find older homes are harder to heat and retain that heat because they're designed to let the heat and moisture out but also to draw it back in again. And so sometimes that means when you try and insulate those walls, so when you try and keep the heat in, which sort of all of these energy efficiency measures aim to do, you're actually blocking the movement of that moisture. And that can lead to things like damp and mould, which harm 
the fabric of the building, but also harm human health. You know, especially people that suffer from asthma or breathing difficulties, but really everyone, children, older people, having having that in the air is not good for anybody. So the first thing is really just how these buildings are constructed. And rural areas just have more older buildings, which may not be a surprise for, for people that are living rurally. The next point is that rural homes are statistically larger and detached, so they're just slightly different. We have, we, you know, we don't really have the blocks of flats that cities and towns do, and this means that there is just more space to heat. But it also means that when a property is detached, it has four outside walls. So that's four outside walls that heat's being lost out of, rather than actually the heat just passing to your next door neighbour's house above or to the side of you. So that's definitely something we're contending with as well. But rural areas just have a lower building density. This is part of the reason why 76% of rural homes don't have access to mains gas grid. So they're what we call off-grid homes, which is why they're heated by things as such as oil. Um, but they're also heated by electricity. They're heated by liquid petroleum gas. There's sort of different ways that you heat them. So, so all of those aspects sort of bring us into the policy base in which all of this is built from. So for those that don't know, all buildings that have been built since 2008 or have been let or have been sold require an energy performance certificate. So this is sort of four pages of information about your property. It gives your property an energy efficiency rating. And this basically tells you how well your property keeps the heat in and how much it costs to heat. And it also has an environmental impact rating. And this is how much carbon is associated with heating your building. Now, the energy efficiency rating is the one that is used in policy. And because it's based on fuel cost and how well heat is kept in homes, it really disadvantages rural homes because rural homes are meant to breathe. They're larger, they're off gas grid, they're harder to heat, they're more expensive. So the very basis of what all of these conversations around decarbonising are happening is at a place which automatically disadvantages these rural off gas grid homes. So because these homes are off gas grid, as I've spoken about before, they are heated by lots of different technologies and ways. Whereas in urban and town environments, you've got the gas grid. So in terms of decarbonisation, the thinking is when those urban homes are going to move to low carbon heating, it will be hydrogen. So these homes already have the infrastructure in place to decarbonize. There will be the replacement of the gas boilers to hydrogen boilers. There will be some things associated with that change, but the infrastructure is there. The infrastructure just isn't there for these rural homes. They will have to be self-sufficient and move on to these low carbon heating technologies. And that really is what the challenge is, is what are they going to be heated by? How, How do we make sure that these older properties, these properties that are designed to breathe, can be energy efficient, can have these low carbon heatings. That heating can be cost effective to the tenant, but the installation can be cost effective to the landlord. There are so many questions around this, which there doesn't seem to be the answer for at the moment. And and what what are the options there for for, um, homeowners if they want to try and address and, and seek new ways of heating their properties? What are the different options they can consider? So that's a really good question. And I think Probably the most important question to ask, actually, in terms of moving to a low carbon economy, I think especially for these older rural homes where the insulation, the wall insulation may not be appropriate. So we really need to think about how they're being heated. I'll sort of do a run through of the options, um, each of them with their own challenges. So 
The government are really behind heat pumps at the moment. So that could be there's air source heat pumps, there's ground source heat pumps. They actually said in their 10 point plan that they want to push out 600,000 heat pumps in the coming year. So really ambitious targets around this technology. And heat pumps definitely have a part to play in rural areas. But I think what's important to remember is it is only a part to play. They're not going to answer all of our questions. They're not going to be the answer to decarbonise rural areas. So at the moment, the installers of the technology require a home to be pretty energy efficient. So that means that it's pretty well insulated before technicians will even install a heat pump, be that ground or air. Now, interestingly, one of our members who's a big fan of heat pumps, he's installed some, well, both air and ground, but some air source heat pumps into old rural traditional properties with really fantastic results. But he said it took him ages to persuade the installers that they could install heat pumps in a property that wasn't insulated. So it's a bit of a battle, I think, with knowing how these heat pumps can be extended out to rural areas. And and that knowledge just doesn't exist at the moment. You know, we have some bold members who are willing to, to take the risk and go against the advice of installers and have had really good results. But we have got a sector that is saying, actually, this technology isn't appropriate for these buildings at the moment. So it's it's having the research, having the information to be able to say, well, actually, they are or they're not. But if you do X, Y and Z, they could be um, without mandating wall insulation which I've said, you know, restricting that breathing can be really harmful to property and and to tenants. So definitely heat pumps have a part to play, but there's just more information which landlords and tenants and homeowners need to have before having the confidence to, to go down that route. And I think probably something else to mention about heat pumps is they're also really expensive. So a an air source heat pump, the Energy Savings Trust, give an average of 9,000 to 11,000 pounds installation cost and a ground source heat pumps more at 14 to 19,000 pounds. So these are really expensive technologies. So yeah, heat pumps will be a big one. Watch that space. But you've also got electricity. You've got electrical sort of in their purest form, radiators, storage heaters. So some rural properties already ha- are already heated by electricity. And, you know, the, the, the feeling is, is everything will be electrified at some point um, t- to meet the low carbon ambitions. I think one of the main issues I hear with electricity is that tenants find it really expensive and they don't actually like it as a heating type. And with all of this decarbonisation, with all of the improvements that are needed on the grid, I, I'm not sure how the cost of electricity is going to be able to come down. So even though electricity might be decarbonising itself and it might be a green heating type, I think you're still we're still going to come up against these issues of it just being expensive for tenants. There's also the question around can the rural grid cope with all homes being electrified and then also for example vehicles being electrified. So can it can it cope? And I think we're thinking probably not at the moment. And one of the things the CLA are quite concerned about is We don't want rural areas to fall behind in terms of infrastructure with electrification, as it has done with broadband and connectivity. If electricity is going to be fundamental in everything we do, we want to make sure that rural areas have equal access to it that urban areas do. So solid fuel. I think for our listeners that that do live in rural areas, they will probably appreciate that this is historically has been a really important way of heating homes. And historically, it was the way homes were heated. So it actually, you know, with the open fires, now with wood burners, the process of burning, drawing through the air through the property worked incredibly well with the construction. So what role does that have to play in the future? 
Government are slightly, they're, they're unsure about wood fuel at the moment. What they have said is that biomass will be an option, but only when landlords can show that, that heat pumps and other low carbon op- options aren't an option. So it's a last resort. I think it's interesting to consider wood fuel in a much wider context because wood fuel is actually an incredibly important byproduct from our woodland and from our forestry. And the UK have these huge tree planting targets. And if there is no wood fuel market, then there's a lot less incentive of people that manage woodlands to undertake their initial thinnings. There has been recent, there's, a, there's one recent study that, that made it into the headlines about the health implications of particulates for wood burners and fires in domestic properties. I think this is probably something we will see a bit more about it. I think the study was only over 60 homes and it was, you know, there wasn't very much information, but I think that's definitely something that might play a part and there'll be more research into. So I suppose it's a bit about, you know, watch this space, um, but hopefully sort of a balanced, a balanced approach will be taken to wood fuel. So another technology, which I, I actually only learned about recently, which I think well, it sounded really exciting, um, slightly too too good to be true, is infrared. This technology uses electricity to create infrared waves. So um, infrared doesn't heat the air. So all of our other heating types heat the air, which then in rural homes are lost, lost through the drafty windows. But um, infrared, interestingly, heats the fabric of the building. So it heats the walls, it heats the sofa, it even heats us when we go into the room. And the process of heating And then that fabric emits it back out into the room, but it emits it back out at a slightly warmer temperature. So interestingly, there is a, I think it's a 25%, but I'd have to, I'd have to check saving on electricity bills in terms of using this technology. The reason that's quite exciting in terms of the rural and older homes conversation is that it doesn't rely on wall insulation because the wall is the convector. It uses the wall to heat and uses the wall to to push the heat back out into the rooms. But the trouble is, you know, like most policies, like most regulation, it always takes a while to catch up with what's happening in the real world. So this is, infrared isn't a new technology, but there's there's a new company that's that's a member of ours who's sort of pushing it more in terms of the rural sector. So it is recognised in terms of energy performance, but it's not recognised as as well as it could be. And I think there's definitely the challenge of bringing more attention to it. But you know, ultimately, when homeowners have these minimum standards they have to get to, they do need a technology that will enable them to do so. And so we need policy and regulation to catch up with these new technologies. And I'm sure there's more out there. You know, I'm, I would always love to hear about new technologies that could help heat rural homes in the future. And just lastly, it's, it's not directly to do with heating, but it's sort of part of the renewable energy package is solar electricity panels. So I think we're, we're definitely seeing them more and more on homes now. So these are also known as photovoltaics and these capture the sun's energy and turn it into electricity. So rather than turning it into heating, it turns it into electricity that can then be used to heat your home. So it might be that you pair your photovoltaics with a heat pump um, or it could just be with electric radiators, but you're, you know, the electricity you're using is from a renewable source. 
a bit of government literature has spoken about um, for the hard to treat rural properties having a bit of a hybrid of heating systems. And I think that's where the difficulty really lies with rural homes is there isn't one answer to fit all. We're not just going to pump hydrogen through the mains gas infrastructure and suddenly all of our urban homes are low carbon. With rural, it's just more difficult that, you know, they're all constructed differently. They all have different will suit different heating types. And I suppose it's probably useful to mention in terms of thinking about this, that the government have announced that they will phase out oil heating from 2028. So nearly half of all rural homes are heated by oil. So it will have a huge impact to rural areas. So this just means from 2028, you won't be able to buy a new oil boiler. You will still be able to access oil, but when your oil boiler comes up for renewal after that date, you will have to think about looking at a different heating type. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. CLA members can access a wealth of information, including the key issues surrounding the energy efficiency rating methodology, why some energy efficiency measures are inappropriate for traditional buildings, and what the proposals are for tightening minimum energy efficiency standards. You can read about the proposals and find out what the CLA are lobbying for on your behalf in our briefing note on the recent government consultation improving the energy performance of private rented homes by visiting the advice section of the CLA website. Those timescales, they're not far away, are they? That Those are really going to focus the minds of homeowners around, okay, what's going to be the future heating options? And as, as you say, whilst it's really useful to have that rundown of all the different options, there is no one solution that's going to work for everybody. You're going to have to look at your property, look at the options and, and weigh up the costs as well of the installation versus the, the benefit. And we all realise that decarbonising rural homes is going to be a huge, huge task across the country. And, and you touched upon it there, you know, what has or will government have to put in place to ensure this happens? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I suppose like most things, when the government want change, they they use two mechanisms, regulation and funding. Looking at regulation first, since I think I mentioned it before, but since 2008, we've had energy performance certificates. These actually came from an EU directive. They're not considered to be <laughs> to be overly useful. There's lots of issues with them. It's something the government is looking into improving because EPCs are really important in terms of everything we talk about because they're the basis, the basis of it. 
Interestingly, the only sector that is currently regulated in terms of energy efficiency is the private rented sector. So these are homes let to other people. The regulation requires these let homes to reach a minimum EPC rating of band E. One of the main drives of this when it first came out was fuel poverty. So the energy efficiency rating, as I said, measures how much it costs to heat your home. Obviously, poverty in itself is incredibly important to to tackle. And this was one of the mechanisms which the government used to do so. Since then, the government has tagged on, it's probably the the wrong way of saying it because it's actually sort of taken centre stage, is using energy performance certificates to meet their targets on climate change and carbon. So we've got this energy performance certificate, which is trying to alleviate and help fuel poverty, but it's also trying to reduce the carbon impact of homes. And and those two are two quite different things, but they're trying to be done by one tool. In terms of the private renter sector, so the current regulations, the government has announced that, or they've put forward proposals, that from 2025, new tenancies will require to meet an EPC band C, and existing homes will need to reach an EPC band C by 2028. So, you know, like you said before, it's really soon. And the issues I explained earlier about how EPC doesn't work for rural homes means that this regulation is really concerning and really difficult for that sector. But probably unsurprisingly, these regulations, these minimum energy efficiency standards are going to be rolled out over not just the private rental sector, but also to social housing and to owner occupier housing. Now, this makes total sense because we can't meet our net zero target if we only target the private rented sector. But for some reason, government seems to have ignored those other two sectors up until now. So the social sector will have to meet the same targets as the private rented sector. So they're looking for that 2028 introduction. And owner-occupier will be a slightly more difficult one to crack. And they've, they've put forward two recommendations for this. And there's a consultation out at the moment, actually, on the lender side of things, because what they're saying to mortgage lenders is... You need to decarbonize your portfolio. So you need to reach an average of EPCC across your portfolio by 2035. And that will be something we see coming in, I think, as early as 2028. And how that will work will come out in the next couple of years. But it's an interesting mechanism the government's decided to do. They've decided to interfere in private transactions for energy efficiency. So it's something we haven't seen before. We haven't seen it in other areas, sort of health and safety, electrical, all that sort of thing. So so it's interesting in that respect. And the other way they want to target owner occupiers is to just put a minimum rating on the point of sale. So when a property comes to be sold from 2028, it needs to reach EPC band C. Now, with all of these things, the regulations don't want to entirely cripple the sector. So the government has put a maximum investment requirement of £10,000 across all of the sectors, so social, private, rented and owner occupier. And what about funding? Because will government make available some some financial support to see these changes through? So in the in the Conservative manifesto, the party promised £9.2 billion to decarbonise homes, public buildings, hospitals, things like that. And in September, we did see the opening of the Green Homes Grant. So this is a £2 billion fund 
open to all homeowners, unfortunately just in England, if anyone's listening from Wales or Scotland. But um, So it's open to all homeowners and it's a voucher scheme where homeowners can apply for a voucher up to the value of £5,000. And this will cover two thirds of the value of energy improvements. Now, the government has primary measures and secondary measures. The primary measures are insulation and low carbon heating. And these are the measures that they think homeowners won't do by themselves without having this money available. You then have the secondary measures, which you can only access once you've used the primary measures, which are things that the government think homeowners need less persuasion to do. So that's why double glazing or secondary glazing is in there, because I think actually, although it's an expensive measure, and I know a lot of our members are frustrated that it's not a primary measure, they think people will do it anyway. So that's their thinking. The reason they've opened this grant is to stimulate green energy efficiency businesses. They want to give it a head start for then it to carry on by itself. In the years to come, but big but unfortunately this this grant our members just haven't really been able to access it and this is because the energy efficiency measures within this grant have to be installed by an accredited installer so this is accredited through Trustmark and it's quite expensive to do I think it's around 800 pounds and the smaller rural businesses just haven't been able to justify that much money on the accreditation, which means you've got urban businesses that are able to access this grant and do the works. But the grant's been really popular. And so these urban accredited firms have no incentive to travel an hour or a couple of hours into rural remote areas to install energy efficiency measures when they have a lot of customers on their doorstep. So what we found is this grant has been really unfairly distributed and it hasn't been able to help rural homes. Now, Rural homes are the least energy efficient. They emit the most carbon. And our argument is that they're actually the most important homes to decarbonise, yet this fund is is doing the opposite. Sort of we are working and we are hoping for some targeted funding for rural off-gas grid homes. Um, Like I said, there's 9.2 billion in the pot and we haven't seen how all of that is allocated. So we're just hoping that the government can see the really important requirement to help rural landlords and rural homeowners decarbonise their homes because, as I think I've, I've probably alluded to rather than saying it earlier, but rural homes are the most difficult and they are the most expensive to decarbonise. So funding is is really, really important in that sector. But, but if a grant cannot be accessed, how will the required changes be paid for? Who's going to foot the bill? So it will be the private sector. So it will be the landlords, it will be the homeowners, it will be the people that will pay for them. And there will be no allowance or discount if you haven't been able to access some government money. It will be as simple as you just being required to pay for the works. You know, once it's all regulation, once it's mandated, that will have to happen. So um, interestingly, one of the things the government is saying is, you know, all of these regulations, all of the requirements spend all this money in homes, you know, it it will really improve our energy efficiency market, but it will also result in higher rents on our homes and also higher property values. But what I expect will happen is rather than sort of energy efficient properties to to gain a higher rent, it will actually be that the inefficient properties, so the properties that are let without reaching, say, an EPC band C, will actually have a lower rent. So the norm will be for energy efficiency properties, and then the least energy efficient properties will, will have a lower rent and also a lower value. And when the whole assessment methodology, when the whole policy is based on something that inaccurately assesses these rural older homes, for, for that to then impact their rental prices and 
property value prices. It could be really harmful, actually. And I suppose another another point to add to that is rural rents can be much lower than urban areas. So it, it can be harder for these improvements that are required to be viable. But interestingly, in a recent member survey we did, it showed that 60% of all of our members let at least one property below market value. And then 24%, so nearly a quarter of all of their homes are let below market value. And we thought this was incredibly interesting. And the reason that so many of our members are letting these homes below market rent is to support the local community and it's to support older people, retired people, vulnerable tenants. And one of the things we're concerned about is if the government is requiring this huge investment to homes without really understanding how they work, is that it might inadvertently be displacing these vulnerable elderly people, which, of course, we really don't want to see. And it may also result in homes being lost out of the private rented sector. As a result of this ambitious target and the significant level of investment required, do you expect a shift in the balance of owner-occupied and private rented sector housing in rural areas? That's a really good question. And absolutely, and unfortunately, because when this assessment methodology inaccurately assesses a rural home's energy performance and mandates such huge sums to be spent on what could be really inappropriate measures like wall insulation, I think we will see landlords making the really difficult decision to sell their private rented property just because that investment is not viable. And we're pretty certain that most of the time, the sale of a private rented sector rural home will be sold to an owner occupier. So the private rented sector will lose that home entirely. And in rural areas, we have very few private rented sector homes. We have very few social homes. And so any, any degree of loss to that sector will have really huge implications to rural communities, to rural businesses, to the economy in these rural areas, and ultimately on sustainability and on climate change. Because if people can't afford to live and work in rural areas, then they'll be living in other places, but some will then need to come and commute back into, into these rural areas. So there's lots of questions, lots of questions around this, but I definitely expect a shift from the private rent sector into, into the owner occupier market. But what needs to be done to make sure that this does not happen? So one of our one of our big asks is that we just want EPCs to be accurate, which doesn't sound like too much to ask, but it's been challenging to sort of get much traction with government. But we, we want these rural homes to be accurately assessed. The assessment methodology is designed on modern buildings. And something we've tried to make clear time and time again is that they work in such a different way to older buildings. But older buildings make up about a fifth of the building stock. So that's four-fifths of the building stock that this assessment methodology does work for. And I think that's really what we're coming up against is we're just a bit too small to really worry about. And they've got these really big carbon targets they need to reach. And actually, it's easier if they just give us some exemptions um, and just make us spend the money rather than actually tackling what's really important. So that yeah, the big one is that EPCs must be accurate. But Interestingly, another sort of practical ask in terms of EPC accuracy is so many of our members have fed back to us that an EPC assessor will go into a house, sort of walk around it for 40 minutes and leave. And it has the sort of for £70, it's given its energy efficiency rating. In France, for example, I read last week that they it is so detailed, that assessment, that they go so far as to measure the glass in the windows and in the doors. So you can see the real difference between the two 
approaches to energy efficiency and to measuring a property. But one of one of the other big things is the metric of the regulation. So the metric is currently on the energy efficiency rating, which is, as I said before, is fuel cost. So how much does it cost to heat your home? But what we're saying is if you want to if you want to reach your carbon targets, you can't use a metric that's based on fuel cost. You're going to have to use a metric that's based on carbon. Now, that already exists within the EPC. You're already given an environmental impact rating. What needs to happen is that that is the one used in the regulations rather than the energy efficiency rating. So that's another one of our big asks. And I mean, lastly, we would like targeted funding. The Green Homes Grant was a step in the right direction in terms of acknowledging that government will have to pay for some energy efficiency measures to decarbonize the housing stock. It can't rely entirely on the private sector, but we really want government to acknowledge just how difficult and expensive it is to decarbonize rural homes. And, and we would like targeted funding to enable these homes to shift to low carbon heating and better research and advice as well. You know, we don't really know what we're doing and we need we need some really, really good research and evidence to show how best this can be achieved. And for our listeners who are who are homeowners and they own rural um, homes, they might be old properties off the gas grid, uh, as you mentioned previously, what advice would you give them in terms of planning for the future? What can they do now to plan ahead? So great question. And I think actually probably probably one that rural homeowners should, should start thinking about. Like you said, 2028 is going to come really quickly. So the first thing I would advise doing is taking a bit of an audit of the homes that you have. And that would include key information. So a big one is obviously their heating type, but also looking at what insulation they have, if they have energy efficient lighting, if they have hot water cylinder insulation. This exercise might be made easier if your homes already have EPCs, but it's something that you can do either by getting draft EPCs or by going around and having a look or because you just know because that's something you're aware of. So once you've got that, you've you've got your starting point and something to work from. Heating is a big one. I think you need to have in your mind that 2028 is the cutoff point for installing new boilers. So for the homes that are heated by oil, I think it's getting your head around that that will have to change. And it would be useful to know when that boiler is up for renewal and whether you decide to jump in front of the 2028 deadline or whether to, to make that move to low carbon sooner. And in terms of that heating type question, the next question is how can you target funding to help to enable this to happen? So what I would recommend, although I've sort of probably spent five minutes talking about the issues with the Green Homes Grant, I would advise having a look at it because it is a pot of money which is available for energy efficiency measures. I really hope that there is a different or or more money for rural homes that's targeted at off-gas grid, but I think we never quite know. So I would definitely have a look at this grant and see whether you can access it for improving your insulation or for these low carbon heating. So that's something that I would do. It's open till March 2022. So you've got sort of just over a year to have a look at that. The hope is that it will be extended. But again, uncertainty around that means that I, I highly recommend it. And then there are things that I call low cost measures. So I think of these as really easy wins. And it's not just an easy win in terms of improving your EPC rating, but these are measures you can do if you live in a modern house in a city or whether you live in an old house in a rural area. And it will definitely improve the comfort for your tenant and also will impact their 
fuel bills. So I think regardless of whether you're mandated to do it, they're useful things to just tick off. You'll have to do them at some point anyway. So these are things like low energy lighting, loft insulation, hot water cylinder insulation, and heating controls. And actually the big one, the cheapest, but usually the one that makes the biggest difference is draft proofing. So these won't cost you more than sort of altogether 500 pounds, but will make a really big difference. And it sort of sets you on your on your trail of, of being proactive in terms of these upcoming regulations. But for the larger investments, it is a balance between waiting for some technology to catch up, waiting for the assessment methodology to wait up, the retrofit advice against getting that funding. So the earlier you think about it, the earlier you have a bit of a plan, I think the easier it will be to take advantage of when things open up and become available. And how important is it that your EPC assessor understands old buildings? That is absolutely key. So for those that don't know, you can become an energy performance certificate assessor in three days. So it's really, really important that you can find someone that understands how old buildings work and are happy to work with you. It will make a huge difference. I mean, we've had so many horror stories of things that EPC assessors haven't looked at, have looked at, don't know, don't understand. And you can put the same EPC assessor into a house and they can come out with two completely different banded homes. So definitely look for someone that knows old old properties there's, there's not a database that tells you what EPC assessors know or properties. There is a central database. And I would say it's worth the phone call. It's worth the conversation because it will make a really, really big difference. So that's a yeah, really good question. And finally, just before we finish, as well as decarbonising homes, are there other aspects which need to be taken into account uh, in terms of rural homes and the green agenda? Yeah, so I, I, I mentioned this sort of in passing earlier, but definitely two big things and that's the electricity grid and connectivity so both of these things having adequate infrastructure into rural areas is so fundamental for for climate change and for decarbonizing and for rural homes fitting in with this green agenda and that's something that the CLA has been well especially with connectivity has been lobbying on and has had some really great outcomes for years and years and that now is moving into the electricity grid making sure that that is sufficient for all of these upcoming changes to make sure that rural areas and rural homes aren't left behind so yeah absolutely electricity grid and connectivity is key uh, absolutely true. Those are very good points. Hermione, uh, you've highlighted uh, a number of incredibly important points in this podcast and the scale of the challenge that lies ahead. You know, There'll be a number of decisions for homeowners to make over the coming decade, and they'll need to weigh up all the different options and see what support is available to them. Uh, we hear a lot about the green recovery, uh, and the government is clearly determined to tackle this issue and reduce our emissions. Um, I've certainly learned a lot from this discussion, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So Hermione, Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Alan. It's been great chatting to you and great to be on the podcast. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's new weekly podcast released every Friday. 
You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 